Welcome to the Pearl of Great Price podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's the 26th of April. Well, in this day in Christian history, we're going to be looking at the theme of William Shakespeare. We go back to the year 1564 and we travel to the centre of England, in Stratford-upon-Avon, where Shakespeare was baptised. He is now widely regarded as the greatest writer in the English language, and possibly the world's greatest dramatist. His legacy may be unprecedented, and it is estimated that he has introduced upwards of 1,700 original words to the English language, which during the 16th and 17th centuries was not standardised. Phrases such as wearing my heart upon my sleeve, breaking the ice, or heart of gold, are colloquial now, but originated in Shakespeare's plays and sonnets, and are several dozen in common usage. A large academic industry has developed around the study of his work and his life, including a renewed interest in his personal history. We are not sure of the date of his birth, but in the parish register for Holy Trinity Church in Stratford is an entry for his baptism on the 26th of April 1564. This is the earliest public reference to William Shakespeare that historians have found. And in Latin it says, Guillemus Filius Johannes Shakespeare, or in English, William, son of John Shakespeare. Next to the entry are three X's, added by a later hand to highlight its significance. According to the baptism register, he was born just three months before a plague outbreak. Hic incepit pestis, or here begins the plague, appears next to the entry for a burial on June the 11th. This may give us an insight to why the baptism occurred midweek rather than a Sunday. Shakespeare's parents had lost their first two children already. With plague, or the rumour of plague, rampant through the town, it must have been an unnerving time for them. The Church of England was in its infancy, in a time of religious turmoil, and the Book of Common Prayer, introduced by Edward VI following the break from Rome, had been suspended by Mary, but reintroduced by Elizabeth five years before Shakespeare's baptism. Slowly being embedded into the life of the church, it stated that infants should be baptised on the next Sunday or holy day following their church, to allow the greatest number of people to witness the sacrament. This advice was not heeded by Shakespeare's family, as the baptism was on a Wednesday, April 26th, and that was not a recognised holy day either. And the plague had not yet quite begun in Stratford, so perhaps there was no rush. So why did they want to avoid a Sunday? It was a time of great religious turmoil. 
The historian Eamon Duffy, in his work The Stripping of the Altars, points out that Roman Catholicism was in lively health prior to the English Reformation. This challenged the prevailing belief that it was a decaying force, theologically spent and unable to provide sufficient spiritual sustenance for the population at large. Duffy argues that this is not so, and he takes a broad range of evidence accounts, wills, memoirs, rude screens, stained glass, joke books, graffiti, etc. to demonstrate that so many aspects of religious life prior to the Reformation were undertaken with well-meaning piety. In 1559, five years before Shakespeare's birth, the Church of England had fully broken from the Roman Catholic Church after the traumatic years of the Catholic Mary's reign. Still traumatised by the rule of Bloody Mary and her attempts to reinstate Catholicism, in the ensuing years extreme pressure was placed on England's Catholics to accept the practice of the new church. Recusancy laws outlawed any service not found in the Book of Common Prayer. And things seemed so volatile that in Shakespeare's lifetime there was widespread, quiet resistance to the newly imposed reforms. Shakespeare's family lived at this time of an accelerated implementation of Protestantism and also quiet resistance towards it in some quarters. Outwardly, they were conforming members of the Church of England. However, Mary Arden, Shakespeare's mother, was from a conspicuous and determinedly Catholic family in Warwickshire. His father, John Shakespeare, was a glove maker and a wool dealer, a successful small businessman, and they lived in a large house in Henley Street that was divided in two parts to allow him to carry out his business from the same premises. It was important to him to conform to the prevailing tides and then as an upstanding local craftsman he was elected to several municipal offices which required being a church member in good standing. At one point acting as town chamberlain he was required to remove all signs of superstition and idolatry from places of worship and covered over the paintings of the chapel of the guild of the Holy Cross. So we can imagine a young Shakespeare being formed in this household where behind the safety of private doors the religious tides at the time would be discussed. A tract apparently signed by John Shakespeare in which he pledged to remain a Catholic in his heart was found in the 18th century in the rafters of his home. This has since been lost, but the reported wording of the tract is linked to a testament written by the then Catholic Archbishop of Milan, Charles Borromeo, and circulated in England by the Jesuit priest Edmund Campion. Campion was the champion for Catholic recusancy and would end up being executed 
A play written by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rome Williams, called Shake Shaft, explored the playwright's lost years. The years between Shakespeare turning 21 and 28 span from 1585 to 1592, and historians talk about this period as his lost years. There was very little evidence of what he was doing or where he was during this time before he became famous, started to become famous on the theatre circuit. However, a will that was unearthed in 1851 shows that a will shakeshaft on the recommendation of John Cotton was acting as a schoolmaster for a Catholic family in Lancashire in Hockton Tower. Cotton is said to have been Shakespeare's last schoolmaster in Stratford-upon-Avon. On writing the play, Rowan Williams said, I think Shakespeare did have a recusant Catholic background. My own hunch, though, is that he didn't go to church much. In the play, Edmund Campion, the aforementioned Jesuit priest, travelling incognito from one household to another to avoid arrest, meets a young Will Shakeshaft, who has been hidden at the request of a schoolmaster in Stratford. Placing Shakespeare at an impressionable age in the orbit of the charismatic Campion, who was executed and revered, is revered as a martyr to this day by Catholics, is quite incendiary to the English establishment, but also gives us a deeper insight to the inner life of the great worksmith, wordsmith. It is thought that Campion's library of books was recovered from Hockton Tower after his execution. And we know that Alexander Hockton left money in his will to a certain William Shakeshaft. We also know that four of the schoolmasters at Shakespeare's school in Stratford were Catholic sympathisers, and one, Simon Hunt, later became a Jesuit priest himself. Archbishop Williams, widely respected for his erudite scholarship, would have been aware of a growing tradition of thought around these lost years. Richard Wilson, a professor of Shakespeare studies at Kingston University, published the theory of the lost Catholic years in Lancashire in the Times Literary Supplement in 1997, shaping a theory that had first been proposed in 1937 by Oliver Baker and restated in 1944 by E.K. Chambers and later by Ernst Honigman in a book, Lost Years. It may be, as we heard in the podcast of March the 31st, that Shakespeare, like John Donne, adapted his faith as he became more established and famous. When it was convenient Shakespeare may have cooled his crypto-Catholicism, only relying on it at the key moments in his life. For instance, his marriage to Anne Hathaway was rushed, partly because she was three months pregnant. Some surmise Shakespeare married in Temple Grafton rather than the Anglican Church in Stratford in order for his wedding to be performed as a Catholic sacrament. 
and when he died, Richard Davies, an 18th century Anglican cleric who lived in the neighbouring county of Gloucestershire, wrote in his diaries that Shakespeare died a papist. Written in his private diaries, he may have been echoing a local tradition. Perhaps the most compelling piece of evidence is the continuation of crypto-Catholicism in Shakespeare's purchase of Blackfriars Gatehouse, a place in London that remained in Catholic hands and was notorious for Jesuit conspiracies, priest holes to hide fugitives and covert Catholic activity in London. Intriguingly, in the Venerable English College, a seminary in Rome, was, which was set up to train Catholic clergy for Britain at times when it was illegal to do so, the ancient visitor records include the names Arthurus Stratfordus Wigaminiensis and Guillemus Clark Stratfordiensis. Scholars have speculated that these names might be related to Shakespeare, who is thought of having visited the city of Rome twice. Understanding these complicated and intense religious currents of the time may, may give us a valuable insight into Shakespeare's unusual ability with language. It was a time when Catholics were forced underground, and Francis Walsingham was developing England's first spy network to inform on dangerous Catholic subversives. What you said and how you said it could be a matter of life and death. And how you use language in public places such as alehouses could be very dangerous, as informers were everywhere. And so codes and hidden messages were necessary. An increasing number of scholars are looking to evidence from Shakespeare's works of double meanings and of hidden messages and codes to Catholics particularly in Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. The whole play can be read as filled with cryptic allusions to the Protestant Reformation. There are also sympathetic allusions to the English Jesuit Edmund Campion in Twelfth Night, and many other instances that detect Catholic sympathies in his works. In linguistics, the secretive language used by a subculture is called a cryptolect. For instance, Cockney rhyming slang developed originally from the cryptolects of London's thieves and vagabonds. In Russia, these skills were often needed under communism. And Shakespeare's scholar Vadim Nikolaev argued that Shakespeare skillfully avoided conflicts with censorship. Gay men developed a language called Polari as a secretive language used to confuse and exclude others. But they affirm the character and the solidarity of a marginalised subculture. Polari had begun to fall into disuse amongst the gay subculture by the late 1960s as the need for a secret code had declined 
with the partial decriminalisation of adult homosexual acts. Having dropped out of memory, recently Polari garnered attention again when a trainee priest in the Church of England attempted to use the cryptolect to queer the liturgy of evening prayer to honour the LGBTQ community during the LGBT History Month. It was probably a well-meaning act, but the plan backfired. It seems likely that Shakespeare blew hot and cold, as many did during his time. There is some evidence of revision of the older plays, such as King John and King Lear, with an anti-Catholic bias. And some have developed anti-Catholic sentiment in Sonnet 124, taking the fools of time in the last lines of this sonnet to, to this eyewitness called the fools of time, which die for goodness, who have lived for crime. This is taken to refer to the many Jesuits who were executed for treason in the years 1594 to 1595. The equivocator arriving at the gate of hell in the porter's speech in Macbeth is widely seen as a reference to the Jesuit father Henry Garnet, who had been executed in 1606. Shakespeare also became the godfather of William Walker in the Church of England, and he remembered his godson in his will with 20 shillings. That's all from the Pearl of Great Price today. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Join us tomorrow if you can, as we look at how the impoverished and embittered John Milton sold the copyright for Paradise Lost. If you want to visit the blog or commission a podcast for your own organisation, visit the website for more information at www.pogp.net. And if you'd like to respond directly, then email the show on pogppod at gmail.com. And apologies to those who recently have subscribed to the podcast. We're having a bit of a technical glitch. Hope to sort it out the next few days. Have a lovely day wherever you are. And thanks for listening.